Hello and welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm your host, Laura Cox Kaplan. My guest today is Magat Wade. She is a serial entrepreneur and an accomplished businesswoman. She's recently launched her third company. And while some might also refer to Magat as a philanthropist, I suspect that's not a word that most accurately describes what she's doing. And we're going to talk to her about that. She is incredibly impressive, but one of the things that's particularly interesting about Megat is her view on poverty and her passion for creating market-based social impact solutions. It's a passion that's been a driving force behind the creation of all of her various businesses, I think it's fair to say. Magat actually is joining us on location in Chicago. We are here at the Policy Circle's annual summit where we're talking about women's leadership, collaboration, impact, and inspiration. And by the way, it's also where the idea of the She Said, She Said podcast actually came to life last year. So it's very special to be here and very special to be here with Magat. Megat, welcome to She Said, She Said. We're delighted to have you. Well, thank you, Laura. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. So let's start with your views on poverty. And they're a little unorthodox in terms of the way in which we've thought about poverty, and poverty in particular as it relates to your home country. So talk to me about your views and your philosophy. Right. So... Oftentimes, uh, when, thi- when people think of poverty, they're often stuck at the symptoms level of poverty. What do I mean by that? <clears throat> when you have, when I look at most of the efforts that people have when it comes to poverty, I see people trying to bring us clean water. I see people trying to bring us shoes. I see people trying to bring us food. I see people trying to bring us clothes. So now go back and think about it. Who, uh, why is it that somebody doesn't have um, access to clean water? It's usually because they're poor. Be- if they don't have access to healthy foods, you know, like uh, nutritious foods, or at least a very, you know, some basic elements of food, it's usually because they're too poor to buy that food. So you're going back to this notion of poverty. Oftentimes, women in the developing world who are dying giving birth or trying on their way to giving birth, usually these are the women that are too poor to have access to a normal hospital or to a normal clinic. We're talking about little health centers in some rural areas in Africa where it's just there is no basic health access. So we're going back to this one word, poverty. And then I, you know, I started looking around and asking people, what do you think poverty is, really? And oftentimes people stop and they look at me and I can tell they've never really thought about what, what does poverty mean? And most importantly, what causes poverty, right? Uh, I have people then telling me, oh, it's because people lack education or they're not well-educated enough or they're not healthy enough. Okay, that's definitely not a good thing, but that's really not the root of, co- of poverty. I have seen countless people starting out 
with no education whatsoever, how many how many self-made men and women do we have in a country like America and all over the world? People who may not have had any education before and they still have made it. So I don't buy this whole thing about education. You know, a lack of education means a um, means poverty. Is it good and better for a person to be educated? Absolutely. But is that the does that stand in the way of someone being able to make it for themselves or not? Not necessarily. So in my mind, you're poor because you have no money, at least not enough money to cater to your basic needs. And if you don't have any money, you have no money because you have no income. What is a source of income for most of us? It's a job, isn't it? So where do jobs come from? Jobs come from businesses, mostly small and medium-sized enterprises. And this is across the board. Um, all countries that have made it have a strong uh, middle-class size mm -hmm. in their population, and that usually comes from the small and medium-sized enterprises. Now, if what you need for people to no longer be poor are the small and medium-sized enterprises who collectively create the gazillions of jobs that we need, then I think it's important that we look at the business climate. So, so then when you look there, what have we found? I look at two indexes that basically try to focus on the ease of doing business. One of them is a doing business index ranking of a World Bank, and another one is a Fraser Institute's Economic Freedom Index. So when you look there, it's fascinating what you see. It's, um, the evidence is damning. What you're seeing is basically what I'm seeing on the ground, uh, that um, the poorest countries in the, in the world actually happen to be at the bottom of those indexes. What they're telling you is that basically, for example, I take the Doing Business Index ranking, it is harder to do business anywhere in Sub-Saharan Africa than it is anywhere in Scandinavia. It is harder to do business anywhere in Sub-Saharan Africa than it is in socialist countries like Nicaragua and Bolivia. Mm -hmm. That's insane. So you start to put the two and two together. And what does it mean for me in real life on the ground in Senegal? What it means on the ground is I am manufacturing our skincare products. And uh, let's take the lip balm, for example. We have seven ingredients that go into that lip balm, and we have to be absolute ticklers when it comes to the, to the quality of our products, to the traceability of each ingredient. Um, everything has to be tested as it should be because, you know, uh, we make sure that our clients are take, well taken care of and that we put the best product out there. And my customer base is the, is the United States, one of the most, uh, you know, elite and uh, sophisticated um, customer base there is. So you don't just fool around. And if even without that, I would just not be proud of myself if I didn't put a good product out there. Sure. So we have our standards, and our standards are much more draconian. Dra um, do you say draconian? Draconian. Uh -huh. Yeah. So our standards are much more draconian than normal uh, because we always like to put ourselves up to um, the highest standards. Yeah. And so when you look at that, you realize that only two ingredients uh, that go into this product I can find in my country at the level and at the standards that I need. So it means that everything else I got to import, and it's okay, we live in a global world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, trade goes all directions, that's great. Now, for those ingredients that I have to bring in, um, three, quarter, three quarters of them are taxed at a 45% tariffs when they get in. Wow. 45%. And um, the other one quarter is taxed at 70%, 68.7%. 
this is insane. That's what it means when the doing business index ranking tells you that it is harder for me to, 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 to start and run a business. That's mm-hmm. what it means. Another example of what it means is in Senegal, it can easily take you up to a year of somebody's time as well as up to a year's of somebody's salary to start a legal business. We're talking about registering a legal business. And this is despite what the government tells you that they have a one-stop shop and everything is supposedly so easy. Right. Compare that to the United States where from the comfort of my any desk, of any computer, mm-hmm. I can start an LLC within 15, 10, 15 minutes, depending on how fast you type. Mm-hmm. So you spend probably 20 bucks. So Compare that. It, it's incredible. I mean, it's an incredible mm-hmm. story, and it's basically the story behind how you've started these multiple businesses. But but let's back up mm-hmm. a bit mm-hmm. and start with, you were born in Senegal, mm-hmm. and you were educated in various places, including the United States, as mm-hmm. I understand it, right? Mm-hmm. So you had this experience, but your first job mm-hmm. wasn't as an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. right? You didn't start there. So let's talk about the journey. Mm-hmm. You took this first job. Mm-hmm. You made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You had an epiphany. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say. I did. So tell me about that moment and and what was it that got your attention? Yes. Um, so basically, I have um, I was born in Senegal, west coast of Africa, and then my, my quickly my family moved us to Germany, and then after Germany we moved to France. So I was primarily educated uh, in France, and then after business school in France, I decided that France was going to be too small for my ambition. So I got out. I'm like. I could go anywhere in the world that I wanted to go to, so I started thinking about a few places. But really, America, the United States of America, had uh, my full attention because um, we—it was this place that I grew up with, um, you know, with Hollywood helping a lot, Hollywood and all the consumer brands, you know, that we in Europe love, whether it's Levi's, all of those different brands. And so, you know, I'm just like, oh, and this is this place where I'm hearing that every you can be anything you want to be, the American dream. So I packed up my bags and I went uh, to Amer- I came to America, spent my, almost a year, my first year in Columbus, Indiana. Learned a lot. I learned a lot, and I'm very glad actually that I got that opportunity to be in the Midwest and to learn about real deep America. And then I moved to California, to San Francisco. Um, and then so there I started out as a headhunter in finance. So I started working for companies like uh, Netflix, like Google, way before any of them became a household name brand. So I was in the, in, the, in Silicon Valley doing really, really well for myself. And I never forget, we had just bought our house in one of the most expensive zip codes in the country. All of this just to say that, you know, I was driving down this one day, uh, down Highway 1 um, towards Big Sur. I started feeling very, I, I was feeling a very um, warm feeling of uh, accomplishment, you know, I was driving down, the sun hitting my face, and it was really, really nice because you're just like, you know, I worked hard for this, and um, this is a great place, and, and you're very grateful for everybody and everything that got you there, uh, thankful for God and all of that stuff. But as often it happens to me, when I would feel happy and proud, then automatically I also start feeling sad and depressed because of um, the thought of the people back home. Mm. I knew every time that happened, I would just have to let it go. And eventually I would get to a place of serenity within a a few moments. But this time it didn't. And actually, if nothing else, it got really violent. It was a really weird feeling. Uh, My hands on the wheel jerked. I was shaken. And I stopped the cars at the first opportunity I had on the side road, and I got out. That's when I decided, I said, you know, I just can't take this anymore. I, I, I really could no longer reconcile 
the life of abundance that I had that I had in the US. Yes, I worked really hard for it and a lot of people helped me get there. I could no longer reconcile that life of abundance with the life of scarcity that was still back home and the very, very grave and serious situations. Uh, almost every week, um, getting news of um, friends, people that I grew up with, people my age who had gone into little fishermen's boats and uh, the you know parents just heard that they are part of a group that left and also that that boat didn't make it. Those were my tragedies, those were my demons for many, many years. Um, and that day, finally, I think something in me just uh, refused to to sit and try to let the feeling pass. Um, something was revolting in, in me. And uh, eventually, I, when I stopped the car, I, um, I was just like a mess. But I made this pledge with God. And I said, listen, God, I'm, I think I'm good now. I'm ready. But, but from now on, I'm, I pledge that every single breath that I will take will be towards the betterment of the country my country, my people, uh, the continent. Mm -hmm. I don't know yet where to go from here, but I, I, do, I devote my, my life to this. Please help me find a way. And it's funny because as soon as I made that deal with the universe and with God, I just started to feel like, I just felt so, so up in the air, but also so grounded. And it was just a strange feeling. And I knew then that this was it for me. And I didn't know how it was going to be it for me, but I knew. And so I got back in the car and I drove back. Sure enough, a few months later, it all started to, mm -hmm. to make sense and to unravel. Had your philosophies and your views on poverty and the free market and these sorts of ideals, had they been percolating prior to this moment, this epiphany? Or were those things that sort of came after you had this realization that I have to do something? Yes, yes. No, I, um, before that moment, I was just like a lot of people. You know, I went to study, then I got a job, then I got a husband, then I got a house. And, <laughs> you were living your life. I was living life. <laughs> that was what it was. I think what happened is something all of a sudden was just no longer accepting this notion that, well, some countries are just poor and some countries are just rich. And, but I was n in no way, shape or form had I really been even on an intellectual path to try and understand what the problem was. The question has been there. But until that precise moment, I could not have art articulated to you what I have been articulated up till you know, now, mm -hmm. and that maybe we'll go into. But no, not to that point, absolutely not. Yeah, I was completely so clueless. It's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Because you really had to stop and yes. kind of have a bit of a breakdown to then reassess. Absolutely. Right? So let's talk about the journey going forward. Mm -hmm. So your first company was a beverage company. Mm -hmm. And talk about the philosophy behind that, because you talk about modern day advertising and consumer principles, mm -hmm. and you kind of turn them on their head a right, bit. Right. So talk a little bit about how that right. came together. You know, remember when I told you that I had that breakdown, then um, a few months later, basically, I got married. Emmanuel and I, we then went to Senegal together, 
uh, for me to show him, you know, this place that I came from. And uh, he was so excited and interested about this one particular drink because I've been talking about it forever. It's the hibiscus drink. We call it bisap. Bisap is a juice of uh, hospitality. It's the beverage of, um, we call it teranga. Teranga means hospitality. That is what us people of Senegal are known for around the world. Teranga. Teranga. And so it dis- if you say Senegal, if you say Senegalese people, people will answer to you right away, hospitality. That's what we're known for. We're a Sufi nation, and Sufis are known for their attachment and their devotion to love, peace, and tolerance. So I took him back there and um, just to realize that this drink that I grew up with, that for me represents a part who we are, culturally speaking, was no longer so readily available because people in Africa... It's less that way now than when we got started, because actually we contributed to, all, to, to the change. But back then, if you are anybody, or if you want to show your status, you show it by consuming uh, Western brands. So Fanta, Pepsi, products like that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not indigenous beverages. And so while the elite was buying these Western brands, then the base of a pyramid, the poor people, which is the base of pyramid and the, and the bigger part of the population, they're busy buying knockout products of Coca-Cola products, mm. you know, coming from China, India, Iran even. So, and in, the me- and in the between, our indigenous beverages are being squeezed out. So this one day, I could finally not take it anymore. We got this one tray that came over and I looked at it and I just got ill with with disappointment in myself, in our own people. You look at this tray. For me, this tray represents the world stage. And the beverages on it represent world cultures that are the respected ones. That's why they're there, because that's the one that people want. And and the reason why we want them is because they've made themselves so desirable, so aspiring. That's why they're there. I see America represented. I see, you know, even France represented. I don't see us represented anywhere. So what does this mean? And so when people think of brands, they don't really understand the relationships between brands and respected cultures around the world. And so, you see, when something really bother, really um, uh, intrigues me, I like to go deep and I like to go find out what's going on. So right there, that's just the vision that I had, that, you know, this is the world stage, the brands on it are, you know, the, the representing the cultures. And so there I went and I looked at... Um, a listing because there is a list for everything almost you'll find and I and I was interested in finding out about the top thousand brands in the world what I found was exactly in line with my intuition uh, when you look at the top 1,000 brands in the world none of them out of the, the first hundred you don't see anything that's African the only one in that whole list was South African Airways which is in my mind hardly a an African brand because it was an African brand started in South Africa under apartheid. So for me, this is not an African brand, but that's it. That's all you saw. Mm -hmm. Who were the top brands? America owns the top of that list, followed by some European countries like France and um, Italy and Germany. So basically Germany and all of that were there because of cars, Mercedes, Volkswagen, you know, companies like that. America, I mean, it was all over. It was very interesting. And look at the brands that are the most the, the most respected in the world. And the fact that we didn't have any brand, African brand in there, it's, it's, uh, it tells you a lot as well. Yeah. So then I'm like, you know what? I, between the fact that I have my culture, not only is my culture dying on one end because people don't value what we have enough, and the fact also that my people are dying trying to get into boats and going to Europe to find jobs, then I quickly put two and two together. Hey, I'm going to start consumer brands 
that are that that have embedded in their DNA the very best of my culture. So that as people drink these things, at first it was a beverage company, then we moved on to cosmetics. Right. As they drink this beverage, or later as they put these lotions on them, as they put this lip balm on them and all that, I am getting a chance to really have a very intimate relationship with each of these customers, with each of these people. And there is nothing more intimate than, you know, when you're using, taking my lotion and putting it on your skin. There's nothing more intimate than that. That actually even uh, nixes what you may see from the media, however biased or however, whatever the world is. This is, this is your truth, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what brands have done. So that's what I decided to do. I decided that I'm going to do, that's all I was going to do, build these consumer brands that have embedded in them the very best of my African culture and try and manufacture, manufacture them back home and then sell them to the U.S., uh, to the cultural creative demographic of the United States that we know has a soft spot for everything made in Africa and also really uh, would like to see us thrive and and um, succeed. Mm -hmm. It's just a match made in heaven. That's what I decided to do. So you've just created your third mm -hmm. in a series of companies, mm -hmm. the latest, and you've mentioned this a couple of times, is mm -hmm. called Skin is Skin. Mm -hmm. It's amazing lip balm. We have it mm -hmm. here on the podcast. I've, I mentioned to Megat, I bought these cute little packets that they, these little purses that they come in for my kids for school, for mm -hmm. their backpacks. It's fantastic. But in addition to the product, so you have the product, but then you also did something really interesting as it relates to Skin is Skin that's different from the other two companies in that you've also created a platform to deal with yet another issue that you were horrified by. Right. Talk a little bit about what, what that is. Right. You see, I feel like by now, we are at the point where every single product that we are using should also serve a bigger purpose than its uh, basic purpose. So lip balm, yes, take care of my lips, make sure everything is good there, but can I use the fact that I'm also using lip balm to do something else? So Skinny Skin actually came to life uh, in my mind in concept in July of 2016. That is when we had those um, three videos that almost came back to back of the black people being shot by the police. I'm not gonna sit here and make it the conversation of uh, who was right, who was wrong. At the end of the day, we had human beings dying in very inhumane ways for the world to watch in a way that once again did not dignify us black people in a way that each human being deserves to, to be treated. Besides my husband's death, it was probably one of the saddest moments of my life. It was also one of the scariest moments of my life in terms of how, not only what was happening around me, but also how I was seeing the, the community being torn, not only within my own community of black people, but also from black people to other communities and back and forth. Um, you see, I happen to believe in um, inclusion. While all of that was happening, I, I kind of became obsessed with uh, black Twitter and uh, following self-proclaimed re reporters they were in the crowd when these riots were happening and kind of showing us visuals and things that maybe the mainstream media was not showing and I just could feel the anger growing in me and this feeling that I actually I don't think I've ever felt that feeling with all of my passion I'm just a passionate person but I think I'm also such a radical optimist that this feeling normally is not part of my repertoire and it's a feeling I think the only way I could identify this is hate um, I've never known this feeling before and it was really scary and um, it was such a dark force 
But the only reason why I did not let it, it was not able to take me completely down underwater is because I was the whole time hanging onto this very simple truth that I just knew was the truth of truths. And it is a simple fact that at the end of the day, skin is skin. And we got to go beyond. I'm not asking you, and I don't want you, to not see my black skin in order to see me. Because my black skin is part of me. So it's not about color blindness, but it's about, yes, I am black and I'm all of those other things that you won't know if you don't try to know me beyond my skin color. Mm-hmm. Eventually, at some point, it became clear that I wanted to do something about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know. So had the company already launched at this? No, back point? then I was at my company number two doing skincare okay. at Sun, and this company, you know, retailed at to- uh, Nordstrom, places like that. But mm-hmm. then we were into. So I was in skincare, building my this thing and all and all of that stuff. But then when Ju- when July happened, I've already been thinking about discrimination. We, uh, my second company, we have already started sponsoring organizations that were working on discrimination because that's already how interested I was in the whole topic. And then those videos started to happen. I was like, oh my god, I'm I'm so obsessed by this. I want to see what can we do about this. And it just completely took over. I knew I wanted to do something about it. I wanted to fight discrimination. So when I started doing best research, I started spending time with brain scientists, behavioral scientists, uh, psychologists, bias, bias experts, that type of people. All the way to the, uh, and I entered also in, in the world of VR, you know, trying to understand VR more, mm-hmm. uh, virtual reality, as it relates to empathy. One thing that I started to learn very quickly from this juxtaposition of experts and scientists is we all have biases. If you've got a brain, you've got biases, it's baked in. Okay, that's interesting. So I was already very happy about the fact that it's something that we all have because I would have been really crushed if I heard that, oh, well, some people are good, some people are bad. No, I don't believe in that. I, I I think so far my experience of a human beings is that we're pretty consistent in terms of there's good in all parts and there's bad in all parts, right? So it was good that that too made it. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. So what we found is that right around age three, two things start to happen. Number one is you as a little being, in order to survive, you're going to have to start to develop the ability to make sense of a world. If you cannot make sense of a world, you will not survive in the world. It's evolutionary biology 101. So what the little being does is you're starting now to make sense of a world, and the way you do that is by making associations. And because you have this little being, it's very, it's not subtle at all. It's very gross versus subtle. So it's starting to make all of these associations. And they're reading, beginning to read faces. Very rough. They're reading faces. Reading faces, and they're getting all of this information from... You know, the, their friends from the little play, from the playground, you know, the, the Disney movies that we're watching, the books that we're being read at night, you know, to put us to bed. Information is coming from everywhere, and most of it is biased anyway because it came from our but, bias society. But they're not seeing color. They're, they're, they're making, right? They're no, no, making no, 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 no. They're, they're going to start to make it. Yeah. Exactly. It's with time. Right around age three, that's when everything, that's when usually starts. Mm-hmm. So that's why I tell parents today who, that's why young people are our hope. So, so. Around that time, that's what happens. They're starting to make associations. They're starting to, to st- they're starting to make sense of a world. So soon they're going to start to be like, hmm. Um, it's not that they don't see color. Um, it's, it's, mo- it's more that they see color and they're like, and so what? Right? <laughs> see, kids are much better than us from that standpoint. Right. Um, but, you know, it's funny because mm-hmm. my own children, both mm-hmm. of them, mm-hmm. I have a boy and a girl. Mm-hmm. 
And when they were about that age, if you ask them to describe a playmate, mm -hmm. and it might be a playmate of a different race, mm -hmm. the last thing they would say mm -hmm. was the color of their skin. They yes. would describe all sorts of other things. They right. might describe what color the dress was, or they might describe the color of their hair, or the color yeah. of their eyes. Yeah. But they wouldn't, they, they no. really, it would be sort of the last thing that they would mention if they mentioned it at all. Because to them, because they have... It wasn't relevant. Exactly. When you don't have... Because if you're going to say... Um, because it was not relevant to what mattered to them. You see? Mm -hmm. It's not that they don't see who is black and who is white. But it's just like, and so what does it matter to the part that I'm interested in right now? Right? Mm -hmm. So, and that's the ability we lose later. Because we get so many stereotypes, you know, you know like superposing each other, that eventually... It seems like even the skin color becomes part of what's supposedly part of a relevant information. So that's in a way what happens. So at the same time, the brain is designed for one thing and one thing only is efficiency. And the way it does efficiency is through automation. It automates as much as possible. So oftentimes, when you're not, when you don't switch your mind on, you're automatically on autopilot. And when you're on autopilot, that's when basically all of your implicit biases, all of these stereotypes that you collected along the way, basically they're just in the back of your head and they're actually the boss. Because consciously speaking, you, you are very well telling me, my God, of course, there is no world in which you and I could be not equal simply because of a difference in skin color. You say that and I say that. I say that to you as a black woman towards a white woman. Mm -hmm. You say that to me as a, black, as a white woman towards me as a black woman. And that's what we believe consciously. Right. Okay. So, so let's let's jump forward. Mm -hmm. The website on which you sell the Skin Is Skin lip balm mm -hmm. has a series of videos that you've developed in collaboration with some university researchers, mm -hmm. and you've got a number of different topics. So, t tell me about the different topics. Yeah. So basically, like we said, we all have biases. It's all about for us. It's all about can you look inward, actually undo your own habit of implicit bias because that is what it is. It's a habit. And we start from the premise that if each one of us does that, then we get to do what I did when I caught that voice. I was able to address it and say, you are nothing, and uh, you actually are not what, what you're, you're, you're not part of me. You're, you're not what I believe. So go away, right? So now imagine if me, you, and everybody else who already believes this, feels this way, can actually do that real work inward. Then from the outward, we have really different, a really different reality for all of us. Mm -hmm. So that's the premise. But for that to happen, we have to make it okay for people to be like, yes, my name is Magad, and my name is Laura, and yes, I've got these biases, because it's true, if you've got a brain, you've got a bias, but now the time has come for us as a species to transcend this, and yes, yes, I have a bias. When you say that, none of us should be making fun of you, none of us should be calling you sexist, racist, uh, whatever it is that it seems like the your, your stereotype is talking about. And then, oh yeah, and I want to work on it uh, because you know what? I'm better than that. And uh, it, 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 What you're really calling for is evolving beyond a natural exactly. bias, acknowledging that you exactly. have it and evolving exactly. beyond it. Exactly. And so that's also what the specialist, even including at the University of Wisconsin that we're working with, said. They said we have to make it okay that in our society, we can just say, yep, yeah, I'm so-and-so, I have these biases, and yes, I want to work on them. Right now, you can't. The minute you go anywhere near there, you'll be called names. So as a company, Skinny Skin is first and foremost here to try through our messaging, to even me putting myself on the spot. I mean, 
thank God I didn't get any pushback or anything like that because I think people can see and hear from my heart where it's all coming from. And I think I, I got a lot of credibility in what I do and uh, my, my intentions. Mm -hmm. So I'm fine. But how many people would, could get away with saying that? Most people would stop at the simple fact, oh my God, you racist. And it's not that. It's right. just, anyway, so the brand is here to do that. And then so once you have... Once we are making it okay to for you to 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 identify your biases, so then we are able then to take you on this journey, and it's this journey of these five exercises. When you take them together, really, what they do is they take you through this process of detect, reflect, and reject. So you detect your bias, the biases. You're able to reflect on them. It's really important to reflect on things, and then from there you are able now to get to the next step, which is rejecting it. And in our case. We have two more of them, which is basically that take you all the way to making new friends and making new connections. So you go all the way from identifying, being aware of biases in you and around you. Like you're going to start watching movies, reading books. You're going to start to see them everywhere. And then once you start, it's a place of no return, by the way. Mm -hmm. we, tell, it's, we have to tell people that. It's a place of no return. You start to see it everywhere. Once that mind of yours is switched on, you see it everywhere. And then you start to see it in you as well. Yeah. And so when that happens, um, what we're trying to, so um, bias awareness, then what you're doing is you're doing a replacement of a bias. So you're trying to see people in different lights. There is a couple more steps like that. Then you have cultural immersion where you're basically immersing yourself in a completely new, new culture. And that you got there from starting with a bias recognition. And then finally, the final step, which is the most fun step. The last two steps are the most fun ones because that's when you're expanding now your horizon. And then you actually start to make friends that you would never, ever have had if you were not able to catch your first your bias in the first place. Sure. So the lip balm is here to serve as your own personal guru or coach on your uh, journey to undoing your habit of um, implicit bias. Fantastic. Thank you. Megat, <clears throat> when you think about your body of work so far, how do you define success for yourself? Um, I think Thoreau is the one who explained it the best. And his whole thing was, Basically, I want for my life to have meant something. And for my life to have meant something in my mind means that if because of me, one person, one human being lived better, then that's what I want my life to be. And I, I'm the first one to tell people, I am not here to be happy. And then people say, well, you're cheating because if people living better through your actions is what makes you happy, um, then you're, you're happy. I say, yes, it does make me happy, but again, my goal in life, and I think this is something that I fundamentally have different from most people I meet, and especially people I think in the West. I think in the West, we are so attached to this idea of, I am entitled to be happy. And to me, happiness is not the end goal of life. People have a hard time understanding that. And I think for me, it's also, accepting this very simple fact of life, that life is hard. Even though uh, happiness is not the goal, I do think and I do know that a lot of us would be much happier actually if we would accept that very simple truth of life, that life is hard. Magat, you are amazing. Well, this has been so incredible. I really appreciate the thank time you. and the perspective, and I know our listeners will as well. So thank you. Thanks for having me, Laura. Absolutely. And thank you all for listening. As I said, we're broadcasting from the Policy Circle here in Chicago this week, a wonderful gathering of women leaders that was originally started by Sylvie Legere Ricketts, 
Kathy Hubbard and Angela Braley. It is terrific. We're going to include some show notes and more information about Megat on our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There you'll find photographs of Megat and of us at the Policy Circle Conference. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening.